Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist recommended facial moisturizer brand. And welcome to series three, episode 12 of Out with Susie Ruffle. I hope that you've been having a good week. I've had a busy one, uh, but we're, it's Sunday now. I just had some banana bread. So, you know, things are, things are looking up. I'm very excited to share today's conversation with you. I think it's a really special one. I absolutely love Susie McCabe. If you're not aware of her, I think you're going to love her too. Uh, what a great conversation we had. Before we get to that, a few thank yous. Thank you so much to any, everyone and anyone that's got in touch this week. Um, after listening to the Ryan O'Connell episode, it seems that we had some new listeners as well. So thank you so much. Uh, I've been getting just such incredible feedback. I'm so delighted that so many of you are enjoying the podcast. Um, as always, I will be sharing a couple of listener emails at the top of the show and then we'll get into the interview. Um, yeah, but let's go to those emails right now. Before I read this email, I just want to highlight that it mentions eating disorders quite briefly, but if that's something you don't feel you can listen to today, maybe just skip forward by a minute or so and then you don't have to hear that if it's something you would prefer not to hear. Dear Susie, I'm a 20-year-old lesbian. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm a massive fan of the show. Kaylee Llewellyn and Joe Lysett had me crying in season one, and I've loved every episode since, so thank you so much for making it happen. This show has also helped me a lot when it has come to really struggling with my sexuality at the start of lockdown and asking myself questions that you ask your guests like what were you like as a child or what do you realise looking back was a sign that you missed. It's really helped me come to terms with my own experience and made me feel insurmountably less alone so thank you. I've been dealing with my sexuality my whole life, but only consciously for the last five years. Even though I do have some strange memories from when I was younger, for example, my female friend wouldn't hold my hand at the cinema when a sad scene came on and I cried my eyes out and pretended it was the film. I've always known where I grew up as the girl who played football and I didn't know it, but as soon as I got to secondary school, that meant everyone had decided I was a lesbian behind my back and that was it. After a series of very intense friendships with women who have almost exclusively now come out as queer and one closeted relationship when I was 16, I took my time during the pandemic to figure out why I always felt so awful in all of my friendships, relationships and in my own skin and have since coming out as a lesbian. My experience as a queer youth has been rather difficult despite being privileged by being white, cis and middle class. I have always not dressed particularly femininely and I've been bullied, attacked, harassed and developed a manageable but intrusive eating disorder because of thinking I looked gay and generally being uncomfortable with my athletic figure. 
For me, sexuality and feminism are very linked. I've never consciously had big crushes on girls, but I always just knew I was never interested in boys. This has always left me feeling very alone and helpless. When as a teenage girl, your life is centered to be for, about, and only validated by boys. And I began acting out in other ways to get laughs and to fit in, which I'm not proud of, but we all have to forgive ourselves eventually. Once I began to peel back some of the internalized misogyny and the fact that men did absolutely nothing to me, I grew into myself and began to accept how beautiful and attractive women are. And it's been the most liberating experience of my entire life. Nowadays, my life is very different. And whilst I still struggle with food, I can see why lots of people think my coming out journey is over because I'm so happy and I'm truly myself. I have an amazing girlfriend who is a raging bisexual, strong feminist and massive piss take like myself. And I don't know if I sound too much like a baby gay when I say this, but I think when people support each other and communicate like we do, we might just be together for a very long time. My parents got divorced because my mum left my dad for her childhood girlfriend. These two really make me believe in love but it was always a secret and still is to this day. My mum has been on a big journey with her sexuality, which I'm very proud of her for, but it wasn't always the easiest growing up and having your main female role model be so ashamed of her sexuality too. In the present day, my life is much better for coming out and being open, even if it just means I can take the piss out of myself because those self-outing gay jokes really are inescapable, it seems. However, I do struggle with having lots of straight friends who sympathise and listen to my experience but have no real understanding. I really do want some queer friends I can see myself and my experiences reflected back in. I also struggle with being at uni and my friends being so much quicker to forgive and continue flirting and hanging out with all the straight boys who so forcefully and ignorantly use homophobic slurs. The conversation I've been having lately with my friends is that being an ally is not just reacting well when someone comes out to you, it's being aware of how a marginalised group have to live and how uncomfortable and hurtful comments like that can be when I've had to work hard on myself in a way that they can never understand. But I'm also becoming aware that this is not a universal feeling. For example, my girlfriend just isn't affected by comments like that and I find myself having a life much angrier at the straight society. I spend so much of my life being run by fear I don't want to let my life now be run by anger and my solution is not a unique one. I want to run off to the city like every other young gay and assemble a squad of gay friends. I use that and queer as my umbrella term. Anyone not straight is welcome. This is something I can easily achieve when I graduate next year, but it's a struggle of feeling alone that I have until then. I don't really know how to end this email because my gay journey is nowhere near done. I'm sure I could add another paragraph to this next week as I figure out something more about myself. I'm just very grateful that programs like this exist so that I have a place to send it. I hope you're doing well and thank you for your time. Now I'm not going to mention her name because she's asked me not to, um, but I loved this email and I was so delighted when I got it. So thank you so much for taking the time to write it and for reaching out. I have absolutely no doubt that you'll find your queer squad um, and you'll see yourself reflected back and it is I do think it is really important but having those conversations with your allies as well is is very brave actually it's really brave and um, hopefully some good can come of that but um, yeah thank you so much for writing in your email really meant a lot to me okay let's go to another one Hi Susie, I've been loving this podcast and I wanted to say cheers for chumming me on my weekly shop. Love chumming. That's great. Chumming me. I mean, it's, it sounds like it could be rude, let's be honest, but I think that I'm being your chum. Okay. I like to think the mask hides the laughs that slipped out, but if not, at least I'll have the added protection of folks giving me a wide berth. 
I grew up in the poop storm of Section 28, although the skid marks have lasted long since. Thankfully, I was surrounded by a close group of queer or cool cis straight friends, and I was comfortable and able to explore pretty openly during my teens. However, I put a massive amount of pressure on myself to make a decision on my sexuality at a pretty young age. The inner turmoil consumed me, and although everything was suggesting I was bisexual, I couldn't align myself with what I thought it was to be bisexual. Anyway, after years of serious deliberation, I came to a conclusion, with the help of a wee dictionary, that I was a lesbian. My friends were expectedly unsurprised and cool about it, and I also have an awesome mum, so I didn't think it was going to be a big problem. I don't remember much of telling her, other than feeling disconnected and choosing to move out for a bit. So there I was, 17-ish, out and proud, and ready to live my big gay life. Until, incoming, sexy man. I fell in love with an awesome dude who I could be 100% myself with. Around this point, I just decided sexuality was a load of nonsense and carried on living my happy little life, refusing to labour myself for years. Sadly, that happy little bubble burst when my husband died. I lost the only person that truly knew me and my refusal to label myself meant that pretty much everyone else in our life had presumed I was straight. I now understood the importance of labels for being seen and to dispel stereotypes. After a few more years, I retold some family and friends. Mum was about as supportive as a pair of nipple tassels again, but we're still grand. Mostly, I just want to prove we're not all bi now gay later. Some of us use gay as a stepping stone to being bi too. Sexuality can be fluid and change over time, and no matter how we identify, many of us have found it difficult to accept, and we should all be able to give a little leeway to our fellow struggling queer folk. And if you don't mind, I would also love a shout out to The Way. Now, I don't know if it's Way or W-A-Y, but it's Widowed and Young, LGBT plus group, who are all awesome, fabulous humans. That's a massive shout out to anyone else that's listening that's part of that gang. You all have a huge shout out. Um, a huge thank you for bringing us out until next time you're in my lugs. Uh, for anyone that's not British or English or understands, maybe you could be Australian. Oh my God, I'm putting a, I'm putting a, a location on you. But I don't know if everyone knows lugs in colloquialisms, certainly where I am, it is. So, um, so just in case you didn't know what that meant. Oh, thank you so much for sending this email. Um, like the, the, the earlier one, it really... Um, it really meant a lot to me and it sounds like you've been through a lot and I think it's so important to say that I think that you know I, I, I always try really hard to make sure that the the by stepping stone isn't something that you know whilst it is some people's experience you know I don't want to say that that being bi is always a stepping stone to being gay I know that that bisexual people exist and you know are wonderful thriving people that that feel their sexuality as much as I feel mine but yeah, it's it's good to realise that sometimes you can be gay and then and then be bi, and that as you say, sexuality is fluid. So um, I really appreciate you writing this in, and shout out to the widowed and young LGBT plus group. And uh, I hope that me chumming you on your weekly shop. Um, I hope this episode makes you laugh a little bit as well. There's lots of funny moments in it, and oh, a moment that really got me right in the heart. And I think you'll be able to hear it. You know me, I'm a big old softy, guys. I cry loads, it helps. Um, but this is the brilliant interview with Susie McCabe. I absolutely love her. She's a phenomenal stand-up. I think she's brilliant, and I think she's such a wonderful person. And you also should know, <laughs> this is good, after the interview, about two days later, there was a parcel in the post for me, and it was a Celtic scarf. So just so you know, when that bit of the interview comes up, I'm now a fan. I now have the actual scarf. Uh, but here's that conversation now. 
Susie McCabe is a Scottish stand-up comedian, and let me tell you, she is bloody funny. Brilliant storytelling, acute observations, and killer punchlines makes her one of the UK's most sought-after performers. But don't just take my word for it, she gets rave reviews across the board. Prepare to laugh yourself silly, said Three Weeks, hilarious, said Broadway Baby, and Kevin Bridges said, a naturally funny storyteller, a genuine stand-up, highly recommended. What a pleasure it is to chat to her today. Welcome to the show, Susie. Hiya, buddy. Hi, mate. How are you? Oh, it's exciting, isn't it? Lovely. <laughs> Do you remember it was like, oh, about almost two years ago now that we done that gig in the most Middle England place ever? Yeah. And I, I, do you remember that? And I was yes. like, they are all here for Susie Ruffle, so what we'll do is we'll put little Susie McCabe on the bill. No. <laughs> and they were like, they were all just like, oh, I didn't bank in a Scottish person being here. <laughs> Two lesbians, lesbian squared. Uh, mate, honestly, two lesbians called Susie in like the most Brexit part of the country. Oh, what a hoot we had. I remember you having a good gig. It was actually, it was a great gig, it was really nice. See, that shows how good Susie is at stand up, <laughs> that she can walk into a room and go, these people are gonna absolutely hate me and she's so charming and funny that they go, do you know what? That Scottish lesbian, I don't agree with her, but she's fucking funny. She was all right. I mean, she did try and steal my car keys after the show, but she was all right. I did warn you about that, mate. Come on, you've got to stop trying to steal cars when you're doing gigs. I know, I know. It's just, you've really it's nice cars in posh parts of England. <laughs> and, you know, when your stand-up was your hobby, mm. when your hobby becomes your job, you've got to find a new hobby. This is true. Just stealing cars, just come back to my youth, really. <laughs> How are you, Susie? We were talking before we started about the fact us lot haven't really been working normally for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was pretty tough, mate, I won't lie. So I was meant to perform at the King's Theatre in Glasgow at yeah. 1,500 ticket sales on Saturday, the 28th of March, 2020. I, and we were into lockdown on the 23rd of March, 2020. Mm -hmm. So that was a bit of a killer. And then and to you know, give people context, the King's Theatre in Glasgow is beautiful. It's gorgeous. like your big sort of it's it's is it the biggest theatre in Glasgow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it's like a beautiful like um I guess what people would think of as like a traditional theatre. Yeah. It's yeah. you know, it, it the, it's the velvet drop down seats, it's the it's the dress circle, it's the gods, and it is also a place for someone I mean so much comedy has come out of Scotland and so many brilliant, I mean, Billy Connolly and Kevin Bridges and Frankie Boyle are like just a few of the people you would have heard of, but the, the storytelling element, like you can go to a Scottish comedy club and see sensational comics that you oh, might yeah. not have heard of, but it's a real, there's a real um, tradition and history in Scotland. And I think that theatre in Glasgow is one that if you read, I mean, any comics autobiography, it's one of the theatres that will often pop up of being like, oh, I had an amazing gig at the King's Theatre Glasgow. Like, it's got that sort of heritage, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think I think it's that thing, like, Nicholas Parsons, I, I don't know if you know this story, right, but Nicholas Parsons always says that Glasgow made him, right? Really? Now, when you think of Nicholas Parsons, you don't think of Glasgow. But the story goes, and it was actually Janie Godley who told me this, and then I met Nicholas Parsons and he told me the story. So he wanted to get into entertainment and he's kind of relatively middle class. I think his dad was a doctor or something. Mm -hmm. He said, oh, you're not doing that. Instead of you going to university because you don't want to go, you can go up to Glasgow and we'll get you a job 
So head family in Mulgay, which is quite a posh suburb in the outskirts of Glasgow, <clears throat> and they got him an apprenticeship in the Glasgow shipyards. So like that's that's quite hard going in nineteen fifties Glasgow, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this little posh guy in the Glasgow shipyards. It always seems as if everybody in Scotland worked in shipyards, right? Alex Ferguson, Billy Conley, right? But <laughs> it, it was such a big part of the industry of the city. And he went to these shipyards and these, these big, gruff Glasgow 1950s men were like, what's this? And they, he was sitting around one day and he started to... They, they said something about somebody they worked with and he'd done an impression. And they were like, D- can you do him? Aye. And he'd done another impression, another impression. That is very confident to do a Scottish accent in front of a Scottish person. And, I mean, and, that is... And, yeah, and you're I mean, bothy. I did one in an Edinburgh Fringe show once, and every night my, my, my bum squeezed up the moment before I did the wee Scottish accent. And... Uh, <laughs> Thinking, will tonight be the night where someone is not happy with this? And I think they took it in the the energy that it was, you know, it was playful and it was fun. But I think that takes a different sort of confidence to do that in a Glasgow shipyard in the 50s. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and a lot of the guys used to set them up for a fall, you know, go down to the stores and ask for a long stand, ask for tartan paint and all that. And then... (laughs) And then when he started to do these impressions, they were like, this this wee guy's great. And it was like, don't pick on him. He's he's one of us at work. And then at night, he was going around all the Glasgow music halls and he was performing, which were notoriously tough. They used to take rivets and nuts and bolts and throw them, <laughs> like, if you were terrible. I'd like to stand like that. I mean... <laughs> I'm sorry, I did a bad day. It was quite stressful. <laughs> and and he'd, he'd done these music halls and he realised that people really liked him. So the uncle eventually says to the dad, look, he's actually got a talent because he was doing comedy, impressions, songs, all this. And he went, right. So he took him to an agent who he knew in London and it was agreed that the agent would go, let me see your stuff. Oh, no, you're not very good. On you go to university and be a doctor. And the agent went, right, let me see your stuff. And he absolutely smashed it out of the park. And he says to the dad, I'm signing him. And that was it. And he got his his stand-up, his performance apprenticeship, going about the kind of music halls of, of Glasgow and, and working in the shipyards and getting that real sense of real life, I suppose, life that he maybe hadn't seen before. I mean, I imagine that would be hard. Like, if you can be funny in front of those rooms, it's that thing when you start comedy and you go you've got to be able to play the hardest room in the country before you can do something like Live at the Apollo. Like, not that everyone thinks that, but certainly, like, we're with the same stand-up agent, and I think they like us to go out and be able to, you know, not in a room where it's homophobic or where it's abusive or anything like that, but to be able to make different kinds of people laugh. Yeah, I mean, I remember starting stand-up, and I was going to places in kind of Lanarkshire, which is the... It's like a kind of super county and and it, it stretches between Glasgow and Edinburgh and down to the borders. And I was mm-hmm. going out to like little former mining villages or, or you know, places where they had steelworks and going into like miners' welfares and stuff like that. I know this is slowly turning into the film Pride, right? But <laughs> <laughs> So there I was dancing on a table. Uh, yeah. but Can I play a Melda Staunton? Of course. Of course. Um and the uh, they, I remember going out this room, you know, and it, or, or like golf clubs, you know, and it's just all these mm-hmm. little guys, 
you know, wee white hair, you know, V-neck sweater, sitting with her wife, you know, oh, hello there, son, you know, that, that, that hello there, and you're like, I'm, I'm not a boy, guys, I'm <laughs> not, I'm not a boy. And I remember going out, and, and, and the west of Scotland has got that, you know, Catholic Protestant divide mm-hmm. thing. Sure. And you're going into these places where you've got quite a lot of kind of Masonic, Protestant, white, straight, old men as a little fat Roman Catholic lesbian. And if you can make them laugh, by the time you pitch up at the stand, you're in easy street, you know? Totally. If you If you can smash that gig you'll walk into the stand and be carried out in their shoulders kind yeah. of thing, you know? And I think as well, sometimes, and I've been guilty of this, I've not given audiences enough... Um, I've assumed too quickly that they're not going to like me. Mm. And actually, being able to make someone laugh, and, like, I'm sure you've had scenarios so similar where people have gone, I've never really met any lesbians, and you go, you have. <laughs> you have. If you go to a tennis club, you absolutely have, mate. But if you can make them laugh and make them realise, you know, we're all the same. My experience with my partner's potentially very similar to your experience with your wife and we can all laugh about you know what goes on in the home or whatever else you know and sometimes being able to have that camaraderie within laughing I've always found can sort of I don't know like yeah allow us to see that we're all not that different totally it it completely kind of breaks down the barrier and what I've actually noticed now right is as the world lurches to the right there's certain elements of kind of feminism that almost don't recognise me as a woman. Mm. And I, I, I just kind of go, what, like, so I've basically been running a gig called uh, Susie McCabe's Virtual Comedy Sailor. So I had a monthly gig on a Wednesday night in a basement. It was like a little cool New York gig, sold out every week, great lineups. And. I have now moved that into a kind of studio that we've made with a 180 degree wraparound screen where we've got Zoom and YouTube so you get the whole feeling of a of a real gig, right? Mm-hmm. It's as close as what we're going to get to a real gig just now. And I put out lineups and I never ever name the open spots. I always have one or two open spots in the middle because I'm always trying to promote new acts because mm-hmm. it's so important, especially just now when there is no gigs. Totally agree. They, and if you can master that gig, by the time you get to a live show, you'll be you'll be coasting. Yeah. So, and I'd asked like Janie and Ashley and Joe Caulfield, and all for various reasons, just couldn't do it within their schedule. And this girl, who's who's kind of comedian or involved in comedy, had an absolute bent like. Oh, there's not a woman in the bill, and you're this and you're that, and I was like, there's actually a minimum of two women in every bill. If you look, I'm a woman. And it was like this tumbleweed moment, you know? And I'm like, so because I'm a gay woman and not a straight woman who's maybe had to put up with sexual harassment or anything like that, I'm not aware of your struggle. Mm. I'm not aware of your side, but you you almost don't recognise me as part of your gang because I have a slightly different life. And But you're so right on that you can't see that you've went so far to the left that you've came back round to the right again. Yeah. How does that work? You know, because there's nobody crueler to women than women. But it was like that thing where these old guys in these clubs and these, you know, bowling clubs, golf clubs and whatever totally accepted you because you then become... I'd, I'd go out for a pint with her on a Saturday and watch the scores 
and the wife would like a wee Chinese and a bottle of wine with her, you know, and that, she's nice, she's a nice, have you seen that wee lesbian? And there's something really nice about that, that they feel so comfortable that they're like, oh, actually, you you just don't want to sleep with men, but you don't actually hate me. No, I don't hate you. I've got no reason to hate you. Yeah. But, like, so that barrier's went... And then ghosting in at the back post, there's an element of women who are just like, you're not a real woman. And you're like, all oh, right, OK. Well, because I'm a lesbian. Well, you don't understand my struggle. That's right. Of course I don't. Oh, yeah, it's really exhausting for anyone that's got to, like, constantly shout about their rights to feel and experience stuff. So let's talk a bit more about Glasgow because we have a lot of listeners that are from, I mean, all over the world, which is lovely. So what was it like growing... You grew up in the east end of Glasgow. I did, yeah. Yeah, I grew up in the east end of Glasgow. My dad was a spark and my mum was like a home help, like a, a home carer. Right, OK. Uh, like for older people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she would like... That was at the time when they used to have like two-hour windows to go in and do their shopping and their cleaning and make their dinner. So my mum would work nine to one and my dad would work away from home because... I was born in 1980, so there really wasn't a lot of work in Scotland. Um, I, I, I will resist the Thatcher rant, right? But okay. uh, with all that going on... So my dad uh, was away working like in Harrods and stuff like that in London as an electrician. Oh, right, OK. Doing up all the shops, doing up Hamleys and stuff like that. And that's, that's what my dad had to do. And both my parents came from, you know, council estates in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. So they had that whole strive to own your own home and own a car and have a better life. And I have an older brother who's eight years older than me who is still in the forces. He's in the Air Force. So, uh, yeah, I grew up in the, the east end of Glasgow as a Roman Catholic, went to a Catholic school, uh, done all that. And, and was it, that a really... Sorry for my ignorance, but was that would that have been a really Catholic area? Uh, no, 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 not particularly. Would have been more mixed. mixed. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's mixed. So there was a non-denominational school across the road from us, but the catchment area for our primary school meant we kind of went out with the area, um, which was great because by going to that school, I I went to St Ambrose. I I got to play football. I, I played for the school girls rugby team. We started all that, so mm. it was great. And and do you know, I actually grew up in quite a decent part of the East End. But uh, you were kind of surrounded by areas that were not so great, so you had that whole easy access to drugs, to drink, mm-hmm. to, to that kind of stuff as well. Uh, what it made me do is it made us all streetwise. You know, we were all streetwise. We were all brought up in a nice enough area, but, you know, we were up to all sorts, and and it, it, it was a kind of streetwise area. And, I, I, you know, a lot of people slag off Glasgow, and a lot of people say it was really difficult to live in Glasgow and be gay. It wasn't. It wasn't at all. Uh, the actual community in Glasgow's fine. You see, what you need to understand with Glasgow is, as much as where it can be a divided city over football or religion, it's a working class industrial city. It's like Liverpool or Newcastle. There's a warmth. There's there's always a couple. There's of a camaraderie. Yeah, yeah. There's always a thing that the, that kind of working class grit always comes through you know that's why there's a thriving comedy scene a thriving mm-hmm. art scene a thriving music scene because where you have that working class that that always comes through 
always mm. comes through. Uh, and it, it's, you know, I always say about Glasgow, you're only ever one street away from a shithole, right? And it's pretty true. <laughs> like, you can be walking down the nicest street and you go up a lane and turn the corner and you're like, really? <laughs> really? But it's actually a really beautiful city. It's a beautiful mm. oh, city. Oh, it is, yeah. I've spent time there when I've, like, I've filmed bits there and then um, and then gone up for, for weekends at the stands and different things like that. And it's, yeah, there is a... Even as someone that's not from there, when you go on stage in Glasgow, there is a warmth. Oh, There's a, totally. a willingness to like you. Yeah. Whereas I find in other cities that have, like, a real identity, sometimes when you walk on stage, the first thought of the audience is, you're not like me. Yeah, yeah. Whereas now, I don't really feel that. Or maybe I've just been lucky in the clubs that I've played. No, I, th- I think you're probably right, because I think if I go on a stage and see, like, Liverpool, I think I would get an easier time than you. 100%. I because think so. they're like, oh, she's one of us. Even though I'm not from London, because the Portsmouth accent is sort of nothingness. It's just the South, mate. It's just, just the, the South. South. Yeah, people wouldn't see you as someone that's from nah. anywhere other than just people who soft drink southerner. Half pints. That's that's the Listen, category you fall into, mate. Half, <laughs> I, I will have a half pint or a pint of shandy, and you can take the piss as long as you like. But that's what I enjoy, okay? And you come up to your capital and ruin it every <laughs> August. <laughs> but yeah, it's that thing. It is that thing where, you know, like Belfast, Newcastle, Liverpool, Glasgow, they're pretty much the same city, you know? Mm-hmm. Port towns, Irish immigration, religious divide. Not so much the religion thing in Newcastle, but certainly Liverpool, Belfast, and Glasgow. Mm. Um, and that's all due to the the Irish immigration that came across and, and that's just what happened and the, the shipyards were kind of notorious for only employing non-Catholics, you know, so right. so that, yeah, yeah, so that was a big kind of thing as well which also happened in um, which also happened in, in Belfast, you know when you go into Belfast you see the two big cranes Oh, and all totally, that. yeah, Arlen yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah So when you're, if so would, would that have been something that you would have been aware of from a really young age oh, this sort of divide 100%. that existed? Really? 100%. Yeah, so you, so you need to remember, like, when I was growing up, so born in 1980, so I grew up at the height of the IRA mainland British bombing campaign. And my dad worked in London. In fact, my dad had done up Harrods for the Christmas opening. And there used to be a thing about clocks and shops in London. That if it wasn't, like, see if it was set at 12 o'clock and it wasn't 12 o'clock and it was flashing, you had to empty the store. And they all get out of the store and the IRA bombed the front of Harrods. And my dad's like, ah, see if I get my fucking hands in there, right? Because he's just spent six months doing up, doing up a shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that was very much a, a thing where you grew up... Because, you know, the, the vehicle for it in Glasgow is football, whether we like mm-hmm. it or not, right? Yeah. A 100% is football. And... You are very. Your range is through and through, right? No, I'm, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Cancel. Stop the recording. Stop the recording. Get the can in the phone. Just to let the listeners know, as Susie came on the call today, that uh, I could hear a Scottish voice in the background that wasn't her, and she came onto the call listening to a Celtic. <laughs> podcast uh, having a meltdown man having a meltdown mate i know it's murder because i couldn't resist that sorry susie carry on because my agent in the in our agency is a good old northern ireland boy he's a, and he is not from the same side of the fence as me so he likes to put little things in my calendar for me to find <laughs> months in advance i'm like you're dead 
Uh, but yeah, so very much aware of that. Um, when you go through the Catholic education system, you're you're very much a Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's a uh, it, it's some. I mean, you can argue about the indoctrination aspect of it and all that, and all all the stuff that comes with it, but. You need to kind of, and I always kind of have this argument with myself, if you look at Scotland and the Republic of Ireland, right, the church had way too much power in the Republic. Uh, It controlled everything, politics and uh, the the church and and politics were, were just two of the same. In Scotland it was different, because after the Reformation in Scotland, they really got rid of Catholics this was like John Knox and the, you know when you go to the assembly to do late night at the assembly mm-hmm. yeah. right? and there's the big guy with a hat a kind of mortar looking hat standing the big statue okay. that, that is the general assembly of the Church of Scotland right that are so Christian they give it over to the fringe for a month and we all say whatever we like inside that building right imagine going to the Vatican like so we're in the Sistine Chapel I've got some jokes for you <laughs> by a lesbian uh, <laughs> So when they, when they done that, they really kind of rid of Catholicism and then when the Irish famine happened and all that, you then got to a point where it was, you know, no no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Mm-hmm. And then no Irish was no Catholics. So it's a stain that remains in the west of Scotland. And it's very much a thing that the Catholic Church kind of went, look, we need to do something here. So like the team I support Celtic was set up to feed the poor. Right, it was set up to feed the poor of the east end of Glasgow, because they couldn't get jobs, because they weren't I had allowed to no work. No idea. Yeah, that. that was the founding of that club. Okay, fine. I'll support Celtic. Okay, you're in fine. Rumble. I'll do it. You're in. So <laughs> next time you're up, I'll take you to a game. Right. Great. Sorry out for game. We'll, we'll meet up with the Bull Bridges. Right. And we'll go go to the game. <laughs> and we uh, and and that that's how that that club started. So it's always had that real kind of socialist element to it and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But the church kind of said, "Look, you need to be better. We need to educate our children because it's going to take a hundred years before they're allowed to be lawyers." So in things like the sixties. If you had were a Catholic and you'd got a scholarship to go to Glasgow Uni and become a lawyer, you then came out and you couldn't get a job. So these lawyers then had to set up their own firms and they became some of the best lawyers in the country. People like Joe Boltrami. Like, with a name like Joseph Boltrami, that is clearly a name that comes from Italy or it's not, you know, Joseph and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so these guys, so it took about 100 years but the Catholic Church in this country for all their faults really focused on education we need to educate our, our kids to make sure they're better than us so that do you want them laying train tracks and tarmacking roads or do you want them making a difference and that kind of is what happens so you're very much aware of that that kind of sense of responsibility mm. of people have done this for you so you go out there and a real knowledge of your heritage I think I think you need to. I think I think, and I, and that kind of applies for your gay social history as well. Yeah, I think so. You need to have that. Like I was really lucky that I came out in nineteen ninety seven. So analog childhood, digital adulthood, very <laughs> lucky in the sense that I. So when I came out, like Tony Blair had maybe been in power four weeks. <laughs> so I grew up with AIDS and the AIDS crisis and all that on the <laughs> TV. I've read in articles that you knew you were a lesbian from quite a young age. Yeah, I was about seven. 
Yeah. And so yeah. was that because you just saw a, a girl and was like, yeah. you just knew? You just, just knew? Just the girl in my class. I was like, yeah, like I like the boys because I play football with them like every playtime yeah. and lunchtime, but I really want to kiss that girl. Yeah. You know? And were you a real tomboy? Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. Mate, I'm sitting here on a Fred Perry and I was listening to a football podcast. This is... <laughs> Do I need this, to ask? <laughs> this has not happened overnight, my friend. Right? <laughs> was it maybe obvious to those around you? Did you, Was it the kind of thing where people would say, are you a lesbian at school? Oh, or did no. they not have the vernacular? Oh, no, that, no, no, that wasn't, that wasn't discussed at this school. Because of a Catholic school? Yeah. Because it was Catholic? Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, I mean, there'll be, and also Section 28. Of course, yeah. Section 28 yeah. Was, was very much there, you know, so uh, it couldn't be discussed and you couldn't come out to a teacher. And no. we, we probably lost some lives because of that. Mm-hmm. Because there was kids trapped in the room. Like, I remember, and I, I know this is going to make me sound really old, right? You know the Brookside Kiss? Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know how old you are. Did you ever see that on television at the time? No, I don't think I did. I'm 35. Right. So, yeah, so, yeah, you would have been, like, five or six or something. So, when that was coming on the telly, it was on post-Watershed. Now, bear in mind, we had gay guys on the TV, you know, obviously portrayed as AIDS victims, because that was the only storyline they could get. And... It was the, the Brookside Kiss, and it was on, I think it was 9, 9.30, and I taped it. I, I kept it hidden in my room, and whenever, like, anyone was out, I'd sit and go and watch it. Not for sexual gratification, just enough total, oh, my God, this is, right, so there are people like me. There are mm-hmm. people like me. And that, like, if you think about that, I was looking at everyone watching It's a Sin, going, oh, big shout-out to the people that are, you know sitting with their, their hand yeah. over the button, right? And people are going, oh, that was me at Queer as Folk. And I was like, oh, that was me at the Brookside Kiss, mm. you know? And and that that's a thing, you know? That that was a real thing. And it kind of saddens me just now with the way the, the, the community is, because we're quite divided. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it totally breaks my heart, do you know? Because I was working in a gay bar when I was mm-hmm. 18. I came out to my parents... And 20 minutes later, I had to leave the family home. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 20 minutes later, I had to leave the family home. And I moved in with my beloved Nana, right? Beloved. Ah, what a woman. And I went to the phone box at the bottom of the street. Yep, phone boxes, because we never even had pagers. And uh, phoned my Nana. I had about 60 pence in my pocket and a bag of stuff. And my Nana said, just jump in a taxi come here and she she lived like a good bit away she actually lived round the corner from where I am now jump in the taxi and just bring your stuff and come in and I got down stairs and she was standing waiting to pay the black hack right which aren't cheap and she's like 77 at this point more statues than the Vatican <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, I walk in and, and we're sitting she goes right so what's what's happened and then it dawns on me oh no this wee woman who I totally adore I'm now going to eat come out to her mm-hmm. like and uh, so I was like right so I've been I've been kicked out of the house and she went right what was happened and I was like well, I'm gay and she went right but what happened I said well I'm gay and she went right I heard that but what happened I said well I sat my mum and dad down and I told them I was gay and then I had to leave I said well the choice was you can stay in the house or you can be gay, <laughs> right? Which, you know, 
fascinating. And, and I do this as a joke, but this genuinely, this genuinely happened. My dad turned around and said to me, is this because you play rugby? Like, rugby's made me gay. Yeah. Like, all that scrummaging just <laughs> <laughs> made me gay. And I, I said to my put me out because I'm gay. And she went, is that enough to put you out for? And I went, aye. And she went, see that's being gay. And I was like, yep. She went, does that mean you can't go and put the kettle on? Oh. That was it. I stayed there for two years. Stayed there for two years. What a woman. Listen, when I worked in Delmonica's, I worked in Delmonica's part-time and then I went full-time. What is Delmonica's? It's it's like a gay bar in Glasgow. Right, Okay. great. So it was like one of the first gay bars in Glasgow and I started off as a glass collector part-time and ended up assistant manager. And uh, she used to come in and see me on a Saturday. So she used to come in and see me, she used to come down on a Saturday and come in and uh, there was Cafe Latte next door and then there was the polo lounge round the corner. Mm-hmm. And so I'd go into the Cafe Latte and get like a wee cake and she'd sit at the end of the bar and have a wee cup of tea. Oh, Susan, that's your nana, right? All the old gay guys. <laughs> yeah, making a fuss of her. Oh, there she is. Hello there, Mrs Macaulay. How are you? <laughs> oh, I'm fine, son. What a to-do. So she'd, she'd sort of like a wee cake and a cup of tea or whatever and we'd have a wee natter and she'd go up the road. And then this one night, I have came in late from the pub, so like one, two in the morning, and she sat up and I, I slept in the, in, in the living room and she went, listen, I've been dozing on and off all day. She's sitting reading the paper. She went, just, uh, just go to your bed. Just go into the bed and have a sleep. I'll, uh, I'm just going to sit up and read the paper. So I goes into the room and she's left me that day's paper sitting at the side of my bed. And I'm like, if I'm reading the paper, what's she reading? Right? So I kind of leave it and then I don't I don't think about it anymore. And about two days later, I was going to start like a six o'clock shift. And she's putting on her wee jacket because she's going down to the chapel bingo where you can win a packet of biscuits and a bottle of bleach. And we are going out the house and she puts her little jacket on and there's an age ribbon. I was like, where did where did you get that? She went, well, I was reading that paper, that pink paper, you know, the pink paper? And I was like, yep. She went, so I picked it up when I was in the pub. I seen the other one, but that had men all over it. <laughs> Imagine my nana reading boys, right? <laughs> just in the middle section, just like, no, nana. Yeah. And all those those ads in the back that's like, do you want a phone call with a scally? Like, scally, oh totally. just a guy in a pair of joggies, just in a pair of tracksuit bottoms, like, I'm your guy. And uh, I was like, all right, she went, so I was reading about the HIV and there was a place... Uh, just down at the Royal, so the bus that my nana would get in at the town would stop outside the Royal Infirmary, where the Steve Retson Clinic was at that time, and she would get out, she got off the bus and went and found the Steve Retson Clinic and went, my granddaughter's gay, can she get AIDS? And they went, right, come in and sit down. And they made her tea, and they put out biscuits, and they sat and they spoke to her for like two hours, and they're like, no, she's fine. Uh, you know, she needs to watch out for hepatitis like all of us and all this kind of stuff, but she's absolutely fine. And I was like, all right. And the Steve Retson guys used to come into the pub on a Thursday and put out the free condoms and lube. Mm-hmm. And uh, they came in and they were like, I said, hi, and they went, we had a visitor this week. I said, I heard. They went, see, when she left, she put £40 in the donation. And I was like, what more do you need? Oh. What more do you need? What more do you need from that? You don't need that anything. Is... <sighs> yeah. So 
This was in the 90s? Yes, it's 1997. So you must have grown up sort of quite aware of what was going on with HIV. Oh, yeah, very much so, Like it was... And even though you are a woman, did you sort of feel that sort of rife homophobia that was coming through in the tabloid press? Was that... Yeah. 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 100%. And, And it was very visible and it was very much, I think, in the shame the shame attached to it and the shame attached to being gay and, you know, like, almost that whole myth of, well, you know, gay men are paedophiles and gays are paedophiles and, and this, abs- like, absolute nonsense. Mm. Uh, and that the AIDS and the homophobia thing was very much a thing. And, do you know, a small-town boy still resonates and it's a really weird thing. I watch that video and I'll... I'll be very aware of the time of of when it was filmed and everything like that. And then it really strikes home. And watching It's a Sin, I watched the first episode and I didn't watch another episode for a fortnight because it really just made me go, you know, all these years later, I've been married to a woman, divorced from a woman, now get a girlfriend. That still resonates. That shame, mm. that, that rejection. It still, it still lies there, and I think there's a certain generation of homosexual. And I kind of put a tweet up saying, you know, the next time you're in a gay bar and you sneer at the old guy, don't sneer at the old guy because he's been to more funerals than what you'll ever be. He's had more bricks thrown at him and, and, and been spat on. So you know what to do? You go and you buy him a pint and you say thank you and you go to your seat and you get on with your day because that guy has made you acceptable in your mm. work. You know, yeah. and it's that thing where people, we need to remember that more. And, you know, I watched It's a Sin and I thought it was fantastic in so many ways and it opened up the conversation. But two things really annoyed me. The lack of lesbians mm-hmm. who cleaned those men and washed those beds and looked after those men because they had no family who were just... It's almost like, well, we'll acknowledge women can we just, right, we'll just write out the gay women. Like, that was very annoying. And also, you see that bit at the end with, with Jill and Keely Hawes' character and they're, they're going at it hammer and tongs. See that shame that she talks about? That shame came from the government. That shame came from the media. Mm. And they get let away with that. Margaret Thatcher... Like, Norman Fowler talks about this. Sat round the table with Margaret Thatcher and chief medical officers and said, this is a national emergency. And it just, no. They've chose that life. They deserve that life. You know? And then that narrative comes from the top. That that, that feeds into the fourth estate. That just runs through the tabloid press. Absolutely runs amok all through that. And then it's just, you're just sitting looking at man in a van who's giving it, well, you know, it's just the booths. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that narrative was never really addressed in that whole series. And and the one woman who should have been blamed more than any other, get away scot-free. Yeah. And, and that's really sad because I'm now going into, like, meetings or I talk to blokes that are in their 40s and 50s who are like, oh, my God, it's a sin. It was amazing television. It was this, it was that. Guys who would never have watched anything like that, never have watched anything mm. like that in a million years. And they're going, yeah, but, I mean, they were really promiscuous. And you're like, no, 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 no. Stop that narrative right now. 
stop that narrative right now because that shame and that disgust at themselves came from that same narrative that was being portrayed by the likes of Piers Morgan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Piers Morgan used to out men yeah. in the entertainment world in a, in a sun column. And you're like, how is he still on television? Yeah, it's insane. It's I felt like that about The Crown as well, that they didn't cover that in the whole Margaret Thatcher years as well. Like, I would have been far more interested to watch something that covered that all with, like, the sort of, all the rumours about Diana going drinking with Freddie Mercury Love and it. all that sort of stuff. It's like, why haven't you told those stories that people yeah. don't necessarily... That's sort of queer folklore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know, do you know the thing, like, <laughs> as well with the, the whole Thatcher thing? See, when they'd done the protest in It's a Sin, so it was, like, 1989, right? And they had people lying down... And they've got, like, cabbies going, Oi, what are you doing? Oi, as if they had never seen a protest. This is 1989. The whole country had been protesting for at least 15 years. Yeah. Between the unions, between the miners, between the steelworkers, between the gays and the poll tax. So this is, like, 1989, when horses ran up Tottenham Court Road to disperse poll tax mm. rallies, and they're like... What's this what is about? This? What is this? Why have we all turned into that Mary Poppins? That's what we're doing here now. <laughs> like, I've never seen a protest in London. What? You've never seen a protest in London? Every weekend Trafalgar Square was filled with protesters. So, mm. whereas you look at Pride as a film, mm. and you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. And that was a real special story. It should always be told, and that's something that should always be celebrated. Mm, you know, because totally that agree. was two very different worlds coming yeah, together. Coming together, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. story. But also, every time I go and gig in a mining village in Wales, I'm like, ah, they'll be all right with me. Same. <laughs> we'll pals. Yeah, right, we'll pals. It's fine. You guys fought for me. I'm all good. I'm all good. <laughs> what was that? You voted Tory? A Welsh Tory? Really? How does that even happen? <laughs> So you're working in the gay bar, and I've and I've read in articles uh, that you've that you've written or that you where you've been interviewed where you said that that was where you sort of really found this community where you felt like people sort of scooped you up. Yeah, and you yeah. felt like part of something. Yeah, yeah, because that was at a point, and oh God, I don't mean to sound like so old, right? But that was at a point where the equality was slowly but surely coming in, and and the acceptance of everything, not maybe so much by parents, but Certainly of people your age that you went to school mm-hmm. with, you know, a lot of them were very like, I kill mate, and a lot of them were like, no, mate, what? And they have subsequently always apologised every time I've met them since, right? And I'm like, it's fine, you know, don't worry about it. But it's good. It's, Do you know what? It's good that people grow enough to apologise, I yeah, always think. Yeah, totally, totally. And I'm like, do you know what? I kind of get it as well. You know, you're indoctrinated into a religious-based education system mm-hmm. and you're told that that's wrong. So mm. that's not really... That's not really your fault. It's but still not great, but it's, it's not great. great. When, yeah, it's positive that people apologise. I've I've seen the error of their ways, but you were certainly feeling that. But the gay community at that point was still, you know, it was still a community. It was mm. still a thing of, you know, they put their arms around you and say you're safe because we're all we're all in here together. And then you get to hear their stories. And their stories are ten times more interesting than yours, and it's more heartbreaking than yours, and 
and it's what they've lived through just by purely being gay or lesbian mm. or you know whatever and you think that's that's tough and but they've done that and they've made those changes and they've forged this path so it's now up to me to do my bit in this journey mm. and make that path smoother and that doesn't matter if you're a a woman or a, or a homosexual it doesn't matter that's we all have that personal responsibility Mm-hmm. and you need to pass that history down as well you know like, I yeah you mentioned that at the beginning about sort of the the importance of sort of gay queer however you like to call it history yeah. being you know because it is something and it's something that we've mentioned before on the podcast but you know you know your family history you know your country's history but you're never told at school like these are the people that fought you know these are the people that did incredible things these are the people that stood up when no one else was. Yeah, yeah. History's only ever written by the victors, though, isn't it? Mm. Right? So we're not as seen as the victors, and we should be, because we should celebrate that. We should celebrate those who went out and marched and walked mm-hmm. and done all those things. I sit, and I'll, I'll read articles, and I'll see things, and I'll watch things, and I see people who have fought and campaigned and who have been given all the rights that they've ever wanted to turn around and go, I'm not giving trans those rights. Yeah. And I'm like, how dare you? Mm-hmm. How dare you? It's almost like the oppressed becomes the oppressor. That has to stop because under our flag, we, it doesn't matter how you identify. It doesn't even matter if you're not, if you just feel a sense of belonging in that community. And you come. Yeah, totally. And you come. If it doesn't matter if you see yourself as trans or non-binary or lesbian or queer or gay, whatever you may see yourself as, yeah. just come in because we need strength in numbers to make the world better, and that's what made the world better for us. Yeah, you know, I still remember going in pride marches and getting bricks thrown. You know, it was only nineteen ninety seven, nineteen ninety eight. Wasn't that long ago? You mm. go twenty years back from that, it was illegal. Yep. So. Progress and everything can be made, but we can't lose the sense of community and who we are. And see who we are, it is a very broad church. You know, mm-hmm. skinheads, bears, uh, you know, drag kings, you know, femme lesbian, whatever, whatever you identify as, we're a broad church and we've got to be open to that. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's a real issue within our community at the moment where you go you, you, you don't shut the door you don't pull the ladder up you what know, does that mean? you put your hand out yeah Susie I've loved this conversation it's been great so mate. much so much now I I know that you occasionally listen to the pod so you know what I'm going to ask you now go for it buddy um so and I'm thinking like I'm thinking about that little Susie mm. who was who had 60p in her pocket and was ringing her nan um her amazing bloody nan. Oh, what a woman. Oh, great. I, I lost her I lost her five years ago. She was 96. And uh, she she was an amazing woman. The fact that I had her till her 96, I just need to take that as great comfort. That, yeah, totally. That, that she was there. Yeah, and what a legacy. Yeah, I remember her turning around in a moment of lucidity. And I had moved back home and she was living there. And my, uh, I'd separated from my wife. And months later, I was, I was kind of seeing someone, and and it's my current girlfriend, and she, uh, she, she's really caring, really good at caring for people in that kind mm-hmm. of situation. I couldn't do it, 
And in this absolute moment of lucidity, my nana turned round and, and just went, used to make a great wee team. And that was it. That was it. But talking about the religion thing, one day we were both in Cena and I'm like, what can we do to kind of help you get to sleep, nana? She went, oh, it'd be nice if you sang me a hymn. And Nicola's not a Catholic, wasn't brought up Catholic. And she sang a Lord of the Dance, you know, Lord Dance, yeah. Dance, right? Yeah. And she sang the hymn. And my nana turned round, bear in mind, like, like, in her bed, dementia, all that, and just looked at Nicola and went, that was lovely, hen. When did you become a Protestant? <laughs> Glasgow in a nutshell, then. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, what would so I say? What would you say to her, or someone that's in a similar position to maybe how you felt then? Uh, how would you, you know, leave that door open to the community and make sure that we're putting out our hand rather than taking up the ladder? Listen, there'll always be someone in a bar, in a cafe, who will listen to you. There'll always be someone and they will have treaded, uh, you know, a path before you and it wouldn't have been easy for them and they'll, they'll have been in a similar situation and it's going, it's going to be okay and you'll find your place in this world and you'll find your voice in this world you might not find it till you're 30, but you'll find it. And when you do find it, you'll realise everything's going to be all right. And you know what? You're going to break hearts. You're going to have your heart broken. But ultimately, that's part and parcel of learning. Perfect. Oh, that was brilliant. It's good fun, mate. Well, that was the wonderful Susie McCabe. I absolutely love her. I think she's brilliant. And now the world is reopening, as you can probably guess. We recorded this a couple of months ago. So uh, now that the world is reopening, do go and see her. She's really, really special. I think she's a really special stand-up. And I'll see you next week. I hope you have a good one. Oh, and a reminder, if you want to watch the new show that I'm on on Comedy Central, it's called Yesterday, Today and the Day Before. It will be on Comedy Central at nine on Thursday. And if you want to watch last week's episode where I talk about gay conversion therapy uh, in my monologue, you can watch that now on Now TV. Okay, you have a great week. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.